Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in name. Adjunctive dexamethasone for tuberculous meningitis in HIV-positive adults. Background. Adjunctive glucocorticoids are widely used to treat human immunodeficiency virus, HIV-associated tuberculous meningitis despite limited data supporting their safety and efficacy. Methods. We conducted a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial involving HIV-positive adults, greater than or equal to 18 years of age, with tuberculous meningitis in Vietnam and Indonesia. Participants were randomly assigned to receive a 6-8 to week tapering course of either dexamethasone or placebo in addition to 12 months of anti-tuberculosis chemotherapy. The primary endpoint was death from any cause during the 12 months after randomization. Results A total of 520 adults were randomly assigned to receive either dexamethasone, 263 participants, or placebo, 257 participants. The median age was 36 years, 255 of 520 participants, 49.0%, had never received antiretroviral therapy, and 251 of 484 participants, 51.9%, with available data had a baseline CD4 count of 50 cells per cubic millimeter or less. Six participants withdrew from the trial, and five were lost to follow-up. During the 12 months of follow-up, death occurred in 116 of 263 participants, 44.1%, in the dexamethasone group and in 126 of 257 participants, 49.0%, in the placebo group, hazard ratio 0.85, 95% confidence interval, 0.66 to 1.10, p equals 0.22. Pre-specified analyses did not reveal a subgroup that clearly benefited from dexamethasone. The incidence of secondary endpoint events, including cases of immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome during the first six months, was similar in the two trial groups. The numbers of participants with at least one serious adverse event were similar in the dexamethasone group, 192 of 263 participants, 73.0%, and the placebo group, 194 of 257 participants, 75.5%, p equals 0.52. Conclusions Among HIV-positive adults with tuberculous meningitis, adjunctive dexamethasone, as compared with placebo, did not confer a benefit with respect to survival or any secondary endpoint. Timing of complete revascularization with multivessel PCI for myocardial infarction. Background 
In patients with ST segment elevation myocardial infarction, STEMI, with multivessel coronary artery disease, the time at which complete revascularization of non-culprit lesions should be performed remains unknown. Methods We performed an international, open-label, randomized, non-inferiority trial at 37 sites in Europe. Patients in a hemodynamically stable condition who had STEMI and multivessel coronary artery disease were randomly assigned to undergo immediate multivessel percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, immediate group, or PCI of the culprit lesion followed by staged multivessel PCI of non-culprit lesions within 19 to 45 days after the index procedure, staged group. The primary endpoint was a composite of death from any cause, non-fatal myocardial infarction, stroke, unplanned ischemia-driven revascularization, or hospitalization for heart failure at one year after randomization. The percentages of patients with a primary or secondary endpoint event are provided as Kaplan-Meier estimates at six months and at one year. Results We assigned 418 patients to undergo immediate multivessel PCI and 422 to undergo staged multivessel PCI. A primary endpoint event occurred in 35 patients, 8.5%, in the immediate group as compared with 68 patients, 16.3%, in the staged group, risk ratio, 0.52, 95% confidence interval, 0.38 to 0.72, p less than 0.001 for non-inferiority and p less than 0.001 for superiority. Non-fatal myocardial infarction and unplanned ischemia-driven revascularization occurred in 8 patients, 2.0%, and 17 patients, 4.1%, respectively, in the immediate group and in 22 patients, 5.3%, and 39 patients, 9.3%, respectively, in the staged group. The risk of death from any cause, the risk of stroke, and the risk of hospitalization for heart failure appeared to be similar in the two groups. A total of 104 patients in the immediate group and 145 patients in the stage group had a serious adverse event. Conclusions Among patients in hemodynamically stable condition with STEMI and multivessel coronary artery disease, immediate multivessel PCI was non-inferior to stage multivessel PCI with respect to the risk of death from any cause, non-fatal myocardial infarction, stroke, unplanned ischemia-driven revascularization, or hospitalization for heart failure at one year. <music> Catheter ablation in end-stage heart failure with atrial fibrillation Background The role of catheter ablation in patients with symptomatic atrial fibrillation and end-stage heart failure is unknown. Methods we conducted a single-center, open-label trial in Germany that involved patients with symptomatic atrial fibrillation and end-stage heart failure who were referred for heart transplantation evaluation. Patients were assigned to receive catheter ablation and guideline-directed medical therapy or medical therapy alone. The primary endpoint was a composite of death from any cause, implantation of a left ventricular assist device, or urgent heart transplantation. Results a total of 97 patients were assigned to the ablation group and 97 to the medical therapy group. The trial was stopped for efficacy by the Data and Safety Monitoring Board one year after randomization was completed. Catheter ablation was performed in 81 of 97 patients, 84%, in the ablation group and in 16 of 97 patients, 16%, in the medical therapy group.
After a median follow-up of 18.0 months, interquartile range, 14.6 to 22.6, a primary endpoint event had occurred in 8 patients, 8%, in the ablation group and in 29 patients, 30%, in the medical therapy group. Hazard ratio, 0.24, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.11 to 0.52, P less than 0.001. Death from any cause occurred in 6 patients, 6%, in the ablation group and in 19 patients, 20%, in the medical therapy group. Hazard ratio, 0.29, 95% C, 0.12 to 0.72. Procedure-related complications occurred in three patients in the ablation group, and in one patient in the medical therapy group. Conclusions Among patients with atrial fibrillation and end-stage heart failure, the combination of catheter ablation and guideline-directed medical therapy was associated with a lower likelihood of a compositive death from any cause, implantation of a left ventricular assist device, or urgent heart transplantation than medical therapy alone. Ceftabipril for treatment of complicated Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia. Background Ceftabipril is a cephalosporin that may be effective for treating complicated Staphylococcus aureus bacteremia, including methicillin resistant S. aureus. Methods In this phase 3, double blind, double dummy, non inferiority trial, adults with complicated S. aureus bacteremia were randomly assigned in a 1 to 1 ratio to receive ceftabiprol at a dose of 500 mg intravenously every 6 hours for 8 days and every 8 hours thereafter or daptomycin at a dose of 6 to 10 mg per kilogram of body weight intravenously every 24 hours plus optional estrianam, at the discretion of the trial site investigators. The primary outcome, overall treatment success 70 days after randomization, defined as survival, Bacteremia clearance, symptom improvement, no new S. aureus bacteremia-related complications, and no receipt of other potentially effective antibiotics, with a non-inferiority margin of 15%, was adjudicated by a data review committee whose members were unaware of the trial group assignments. Safety was also assessed. Results Of 390 patients who underwent randomization, 387, 189 in the ceftabiprol group and 198 in the daptomycin group, had confirmed S. aureus bacteremia and received ceftabiprol or daptomycin, modified intention to treat population. A total of 132 of 189 patients, 69.8% in the ceftabiprol group, and 136 of 198 patients, 68.7%, in the daptomycin group had overall treatment success, adjusted difference, 2.0 percentage points, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 7.1 to 11.1. Findings appeared to be consistent between the ceftabiprol and daptomycin groups in key subgroups and with respect to secondary outcomes, including mortality, 9.0% and 9.1%, respectively, 95% C, minus 6.2 to 5.2, and the percentage of patients with microbiologic eradication, 82.0% and 77.3%, 95% C, minus 2.9 to 13.0. Adverse events were reported in 121 of 191 patients, 63.4%, who received ceftabiprol and 117 of 198 patients, 59.1%, who received daptomycin, 
serious adverse events were reported in 36 patients, 18.8%, and 45 patients, 22.7%, respectively. Gastrointestinal adverse events, primarily mild nausea, were more frequent with ceftabiprol. Conclusions Ceftabiprol was non-inferior to daptomycin with respect to overall treatment success in patients with complicated S. aureus bacteremia. Next article from JAMA. Effects of cuff size on the accuracy of blood pressure readings The cuff SC randomized crossover trial. Importance Clinical Practice Guidelines recommend selecting an appropriately sized cuff based on mid-arm circumference prior to measuring blood pressure, BP. To our knowledge, the effect of miscuffing on BP measurement when using an automated BP device has not been quantified. Objective to determine the effect of using a regular BP cuff versus an appropriately sized BP cuff on automated BP readings. Design, setting, and participants This randomized crossover trial of community-dwelling adults with a wide range of mid-arm circumferences took place between March 16 and October 25, 2021, in Baltimore, Maryland. Participants were recruited via BP screening events at a public food market and a senior housing facility targeted mailings to prior research participants, placement of study brochures in hypertension clinics at Johns Hopkins University, and referrals from physicians providing hypertension care to adults. Interventions participants underwent four sets of triplicate BP measurements, with the initial three sets using an appropriate, too small or too large BP cuff in random order. The fourth set of triplicate measurements was always completed with an appropriate BP cuff. Main outcomes and measures The primary outcome was the difference in mean BP when measured with a regular BP cuff compared with an appropriate BP cuff. The secondary outcome was the difference in BP when using too small or too large BP cuffs versus an appropriate BP cuff across all cuff sizes. Results were also stratified by systolic BP, greater than or equal to 130mHg versus less than 130mHg and body mass index, calculated as weight in kilograms divided by height in meters squared, greater than or equal to 30 versus less than 30. Results a total of 195 adults, mean, SD, age, 54, 16, years, 67, 34%, male, 132, 68%, black, 100, 51%, with hypertension, were randomized for inclusion. Among individuals requiring a small BP cuff, use of a regular BP cuff resulted in a statistically significant lower BP reading, mean systolic BP difference, minus 3.6, 95% C, minus 5.6 to minus 1.7, um HG. In contrast, among individuals requiring a large or extra-large BP cuff, Use of a regular BP cuff resulted in a statistically significant higher BP reading, mean systolic BP difference, 4.8, 95% C, 3.0 to 6.6, um HG and 19.5, 95% C, 16.1 to 22.9, um HG, respectively. For the secondary outcome, BP differences with overcuffing and undercuffing by 1 and 2 cuff sizes were greater among those requiring larger BP cuffs. The results were consistent in stratified analyses by systolic BP and body mass index. Conclusions and relevance in this randomized crossover trial, miscuffing resulted in strikingly inaccurate BP measurements. 
This is particularly concerning for settings where one regular BP cuff size is routinely used in all individuals, regardless of arm size. A renewed emphasis on individualized BP cuff selection is warranted. Association of Intensive Lifestyle Intervention for Type 2 Diabetes with Labor Market Outcomes Importance and Intensive Lifestyle Intervention, ILI, has been shown to improve diabetes management and physical function. These benefits could lead to better labor market outcomes, but this has not been previously studied. Objective to estimate the association of an ILI for weight loss in type 2 diabetes with employment, earnings, and disability benefit received during after the intervention. Design, setting, and participants This cohort study included participants with type 2 diabetes and overweight or obesity and compared an ILI with a control condition of diabetes support and education. Data for the original trial were accrued from August 22, 2001, to September 14, 2012. Trial data were linked with Social Security Administration records to investigate whether, relative to the control group, the ILI was associated with improvements in labor market outcomes during and after the intervention period. Difference in differences models estimating relative changes in employment, earnings, and disability benefit receipt between the ILI and control groups were used, accounting for pre-randomization differences in outcomes for linked participants. Outcome data were analyzed from July 13, 2020, to May 17, 2023. Exposure The ILI consisted of sessions with lifestyle counselors, dietitians, exercise specialists, and behavioral therapists on a weekly basis in the first six months, decreasing to a monthly basis by the fourth year, designed to achieve and maintain at least 7% weight loss. The control group received group-based diabetes education sessions three times annually during the first four years, with one annual session thereafter. Main Outcomes and Measures Employment and Receipt of Federal Disability Benefits, Supplemental Security Income and Social Security Disability Insurance, Earnings, and Disability Benefit Payments from 1994 through 2018. Results A total of 3,091 trial participants were linked with Social Security Administration data, 60.1% of 5,145 participants initially randomized and 97.0% of 3,188 of participants consenting to linkage. Among the 3,091 with fully linked data, 1836, 59.4%, were women and mean, SD, age was 58.4, 6.5, years. Baseline clinical and demographic characteristics were similar between linked participants in the ILI and control groups. Employment increased by 2.9, 95% C, 0.3 to 5.5, percentage points for the ILI group relative to controls, P equals 0.03, with no significant relative change in disability benefit receipt, minus 0.9, 95% C, minus 2.1 to 0.3, percentage points. P equals 0.13. Conclusions and relevance The findings of this cohort study suggest that an ILI to prevent the progression and complications of type 2 diabetes was associated with higher levels of employment. Labor market productivity should be considered when evaluating interventions to manage chronic diseases.
Comparison of particulate air pollution from different emission sources and incident dementia in the U.S. Importance emerging evidence indicates that exposure to fine particulate matter, PM2.5, air pollution may increase dementia risk in older adults. Although this evidence suggests opportunities for intervention, little is known about the relative importance of PM2.5 from different emission sources. Objective to examine associations of long-term exposure of total and source-specific PM2.5 with incident dementia in older adults. Design, setting, and participants The Environmental Predictors of Cognitive Health and Aging Study used biennial survey data from January 1, 1998, to December 31, 2016, for participants in the Health and Retirement Study, which is a nationally representative, population-based cohort study in the U.S. The present cohort study included all participants older than 50 years who were without dementia at baseline and had available exposure, outcome, and demographic data between 1998 and 2016, and equals 27,857. Analyzes were performed from January 31 to May 1, 2022. Exposures The 10-year mean total PM2.5 and PM2.5 from nine emission sources at participant residences for each month during follow-up using spatiotemporal and chemical transport models. Main outcomes and measures The main outcome was incident dementia as classified by a validated algorithm incorporating respondent-based cognitive testing and proxy respondent reports. Adjusted hazard ratios HRs were estimated for incident dementia per IQR of residential PM2.5 concentrations using time-varying, weighted Cox proportional hazards regression models with adjustment for the individual and area-level risk factors. Results among 27,857 participants, mean, SD, age, 61, 10, years, 15,747, 56.5%, female, 4,105, 15%, developed dementia during a mean, SD, follow-up of 10.2, 5.6, years. Higher concentrations of total PM2.5 were associated with greater rates of incident dementia, HR, 1.08 per IQR, 95% C, 1.01 to 1.17. In single pollutant models, PM2.5 from all sources, except dust, were associated with increased rates of dementia, with the strongest associations for agriculture, traffic, coal combustion, and wildfires. After control for PM2.5 from all other sources and copollutants, only PM2.5 from agriculture, HR, 1.13, 95% C, 1.01 to 1.27, and wildfires, HR, 1.05, 95% C, 1.02 to 1.08, were robustly associated with greater rates of dementia. Conclusion and relevance in this cohort study, higher residential PM2.5 levels, especially from agriculture and wildfires, were associated with higher rates of incident dementia, providing further evidence supporting PM2.5 reduction as a population-based approach to promote healthy cognitive aging. These findings also indicate that intervening on key emission sources might have value, although more research is needed to confirm these findings. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Risk for Congenital Anomalies in Children Conceived with Medically Assisted Fertility Treatment Background More than 2 million children are conceived annually using assisted reproductive technologies, arts, 
with a similar number conceived using ovulation induction and intrauterine insemination, oi oi. Previous studies suggest that art-conceived children are at increased risk for congenital anomalies, CAs. However, the role of underlying infertility in this risk remains unclear, and art clinical and laboratory practices have changed drastically over time, particularly there has been an increase in intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI, and cryopreservation. Objective to investigate the role of underlying infertility and fertility treatment on CA risks in the first two years of life. Design. Propensity score weighted population-based cohort study. Setting. New South Wales, Australia. Participants. 851-984 infants, 828-099 singletons and 23-885 plural children, delivered between 2009 and 2017. Measurements. Adjusted risk difference, ARD in CAs of infants conceived through fertility treatment compared with two naturally conceived, NC, control groups, those with and without a parental history of infertility, NC infertile and NC fertile. Results. The overall incidence of CAs was 459 per 10 000 singleton births and 757 per 10 000 plural births. Compared with NC fertile singleton control infants, N equals 747018, art conceived singleton infants, N equals 31256, had an elevated risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 19.0 cases per 10 000 births, 95% C, 2.3 to 35.6, the risk remained unchanged, ARD, 22 cases per 10 000 births, C, 4.6 to 39.4. When compared with NC infertile singleton control infants, N equals 36251 that is, after accounting for parental infertility, indicating that ART remained an independent risk. After accounting for parental infertility, ICSI in couples without male infertility was associated with an increased risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 47.8 cases per 10 000 singleton births, C, 12.6 to 83.1. There was some suggestion of increased risk for CAs after fresh embryo transfer, although estimates were imprecise and inconsistent. There were no increased risks for CAs among oi slash conceived infants, N equals 13,574. Limitations This study measured the risk for CAs only in those children who were born at or after 20 weeks gestation. Observational study design precludes causal inference. Many estimates were imprecise. Conclusion. Patients should be counseled on the small increased risk for genitourinary abnormalities after ART, particularly after IXE, which should be avoided in couples without problems of male infertility. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Risk for Congenital Anomalies in Children Conceived with Medically Assisted Fertility Treatment Background More than 2 million children are conceived annually using assisted reproductive technologies, ARTS, with a similar number conceived using ovulation induction and intrauterine insemination, oi oi Previous studies suggest that ART-conceived children are at increased risk for congenital anomalies, CAs, However, the role of underlying infertility in this risk remains unclear, and art clinical and laboratory practices have changed drastically over time, particularly there has been an increase in intracytoplasmic sperm injection, 
ICSI, and cryopreservation. Objective To investigate the role of underlying infertility and fertility treatment on CA risks in the first two years of life. Design Propensity score-weighted population-based cohort study. Setting New South Wales, Australia Participants 851-984 infants, 828-099 singletons and 23-885 plural children, delivered between 2009 and 2017. Measurements Adjusted risk difference, ARD to CAs of infants conceived through fertility treatment compared with two naturally conceived, NC, control groups, those with and without a parental history of infertility, NC infertile and NC fertile. Results the overall incidence of CAs was 459 per 10,000 singleton births and 757 per 10,000 plural births. Compared with NC fertile singleton control infants, N equals 747018, ART conceived singleton infants, N equals 31256, had an elevated risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 19.0 cases per 10,000 births, 95% C. 2.3 to 35.6, the risk remained unchanged, ARD, 22 cases per 10,000 births, C, 4.6 to 39.4, when compared with NC infertile singleton control infants, N equals 36,251 that is, after accounting for parental infertility, indicating that ART remained an independent risk. After accounting for parental infertility, ICSI in couples without male infertility was associated with an increased risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 47.8 cases per 10,000 singleton births, C, 12.6 to 83.1. There was some suggestion of increased risk for CAs after fresh embryo transfer, although estimates were imprecise and inconsistent. There were no increased risks for CAs among oi oi conceived infants, N equals 13,574. Limitations. This study measured the risk for CAs only in those children who were born at or after 20 weeks gestation. Observational study design precludes causal inference. Many estimates were imprecise. Conclusion. Patients should be counseled on the small increased risk for genitourinary abnormalities after ART, particularly after ICSI, which should be avoided in couples without problems of male infertility. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Risk for Congenital Anomalies in Children Conceived with Medically Assisted Fertility Treatment Background More than 2 million children are conceived annually using assisted reproductive technologies, ARTS, with a similar number conceived using ovulation induction and intrauterine insemination, oi oi Previous studies suggest that ART-conceived children are at increased risk for congenital anomalies, CAs, However, the role of underlying infertility in this risk remains unclear, and our clinical and laboratory practices have changed drastically over time, particularly there has been an increase in intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI, and cryopreservation. Objective To investigate the role of underlying infertility and fertility treatment on CA risks in the first two years of life. Design Propensity score-weighted population-based cohort study Setting New South Wales, Australia Participants 851-984 infants, 
828099 singletons and 23885 plural children, delivered between 2009 and 2017. Measurements Adjusted risk difference, RDA to CAs of infants conceived through fertility treatment compared with two naturally conceived, NC, control groups, those with and without a parental history of infertility, NC infertile and NC fertile. Results The overall incidence of CAs was 459 per 10 000 singleton births and 757 per 10 000 plural births. Compared with NC fertile singleton control infants, N equals 747018, art conceived singleton infants, N equals 31256, had an elevated risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 19.0 cases per 10 000 births, 95% C, 2.3 to 35.6, the risk remained unchanged, ARD, 22 cases per 10 000 births, C, 4.6 to 39.4. When compared with NC infertile singleton control infants, N equals 36251 that is, after accounting for parental infertility, indicating that ART remained an independent risk. After accounting for parental infertility, IXI in couples without male infertility was associated with an increased risk for major genitourinary abnormalities, ARD, 47.8 cases per 10 000 singleton births, C, 12.6 to 83.1. There was some suggestion of increased risk for CAs after fresh embryo transfer, although estimates were imprecise and inconsistent. There were no increased risks for CAs among oi slash conceived infants, N equals 13,574. Limitations This study measured the risk for CAs only in those children who were born at or after 20 weeks gestation. Observational study design precludes causal inference. Many estimates were imprecise. Conclusion. Patients should be counseled on the small increased risk for genitourinary abnormalities after ART, particularly after IXI, which should be avoided in couples without problems of male infertility. Implications of the use of artificial intelligence predictive models in healthcare settings. Background. Substantial effort has been directed toward demonstrating uses of predictive models in healthcare. However, implementation of these models into clinical practice may influence patient outcomes, which in turn are captured in electronic health record data. As a result, deployed models may affect the predictive ability of current and future models. Objective To estimate changes in predictive model performance with use through three common scenarios, model retraining, sequentially implementing one model after another, and intervening in response to a model when two are simultaneously implemented. Design Simulation of model implementation and use in critical care settings at various levels of intervention effectiveness and clinician adherence. Models were either trained or retrained after simulated implementation. Setting Admissions to the Intensive Care Unit, ICU, at Mount Sinai Health System, New York, New York, and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Boston, Massachusetts. Patients. 130-000 critical care admissions across both health systems. Intervention. Across three scenarios, interventions were simulated at varying levels of clinician adherence and effectiveness. Measurements. Statistical measures of performance, including threshold-independent, area-under-the-curve, and threshold-dependent measures. 
Results At fixed 90% sensitivity, in scenario 1 a mortality prediction model lost 9% to 39% specificity after retraining once and in scenario 2 a mortality prediction model lost 8% to 15% specificity when created after the implementation of an acute kidney injury, AKI, prediction model. In scenario 3, models for Aki and mortality prediction implemented simultaneously, each led to reduced effective accuracy of the other by 1% to 28%. Limitations In real-world practice, the effectiveness of an adherence to model-based recommendations are rarely known in advance. Only binary classifiers for tabular ICU admissions data were simulated. Conclusion In simulated ICU settings, a universally effective model updating approach for maintaining model performance does not seem to exist. Model use may have to be recorded to maintain viability of predictive modeling. Next article from BMJ. Interactive effects of ambient fine particulate matter and ozone on daily mortality in 372 cities. Objective to investigate potential interactive effects of fine particulate matter, PM2.5, and ozone, O3, on daily mortality at global level. Design two stage time series analysis. Setting 372 cities across 19 countries and regions. Population daily counts of deaths from all causes, cardiovascular disease, and respiratory disease. Main outcome measure daily mortality data during 1994 to 2020. Stratified analyzes by co-pollutant exposures and synergy index, greater than 1 denotes the combined effect of pollutants is greater than individual effects, were applied to explore the interaction between PM2.5 and O3 in association with mortality. Results during the study period across the 372 cities, 19.3 million deaths were attributable to all causes, 5.3 million to cardiovascular disease, and 1.9 million to respiratory disease. The risk of total mortality for a 10G-M3 increment in PM2.5, lag 0 to 1 days, ranged from 0.47%, 95% confidence interval 0.26% to 0.67%, to 1.25%, 1.02% to 1.48%, from the lowest to highest fourths of O3 concentration, and for a 10G-M3 increase in O3 range from 0.04%, minus 0.09% to 0.16%, to 0.29%, 0.18% to 0.39%, from the lowest to highest fourths of PM2.5 concentration, with significant differences between strata, P for interaction less than 0.001. A significant synergistic interaction was also identified between PM2.5 and O3 for total mortality, with a synergy index of 1.93, 95% confidence interval 1.47 to 3.34. Subgroup analyzes showed that interactions between PM2.5 and O3 on all three mortality endpoints were more prominent in high-latitude regions and during cold seasons. Conclusion The findings of this study suggest a synergistic effect of PM2.5 and O3 on total, cardiovascular, and respiratory mortality, indicating the benefit of coordinated control strategies for both pollutants. Next article from Lancet. 
Adaptive versus Conventional Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy in Patients with Heart Failure, Adapt Response, a Global, Prospective, Randomized Controlled Trial. Background Continuous Automatic Optimization of Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy, CRT, Stimulating Only the Left Ventricle Diffuse with Intrinsic Right Bundle Conduction, Synchronized Left Ventricular Stimulation, Might Offer Better Outcomes Than Conventional CRT in Patients with Heart Failure, left bundle branch block, and normal atrioventricular conduction. This study aimed to compare clinical outcomes of adaptive CRT versus conventional CRT in patients with heart failure with intact atrioventricular conduction and left bundle branch block. Methods This global, prospective, randomized controlled trial was done in 227 hospitals in 27 countries across Asia, Australia, Europe, and North America. Eligible patients were aged 18 years or older with class 2 to 4 heart failure, an ejection fraction of 35% or less, left bundle branch block with QRS duration of 140 milliseconds or more, male patients, or 130 milliseconds or more, female patients, and a baseline PR interval 200 milliseconds or less. Patients were randomly assigned, one-to-one, via block permutation to adaptive CRT, an algorithm providing synchronized left ventricular stimulation, or conventional biventricular CRT using a device programmer. All patients received device programming but were masked until procedures were completed. Site staff were not masked to group assignment. The primary outcome was a composite of all-cause death or intervention for heart failure decompensation. Findings Between August 5, 2014 and Jan 31, 2019, of 3,797 patients enrolled, 3,617, 95.3%, were randomly assigned, 1810 to adaptive CRT and 1807 to conventional CRT. The futility boundary was crossed at the third interim analysis on June 23, 2022, when the decision was made to stop the trial early. 1,568 43 middle.4% of 3,617 patients were female and 2049, 56 6% were male. Median follow-up was 59 middle.0 months, IQR 4572. A primary outcome event occurred in 430 of 1810 patients, Kaplan-Meier occurrence rate 23 middle.5%, 95% C21 middle.3 to 25 middle.5, at 60 months, in the adaptive CRT group and in 470 of 1807 patients, 25 middle.7%, 23 middle.5 to 27 middle.8, at 60 months, in the conventional CRT group, hazard ratio 0 middle.89, 95% C0 middle.78 to 1 middle.01, P equals 0 middle.077. System-related adverse events were reported in 452, 25 middle.0%, of 1810 patients in the adaptive CRT group, and 440, 24 middle.3%, of 1807 patients in the conventional CRT group. Interpretation Compared with conventional CRT, adaptive CRT did not significantly reduce the incidence of all-cause death or intervention for heart failure decompensation in the included population of patients with heart failure, left bundle branch block, and intact AV conduction. Death and heart failure decompensation rates were low with both CRT therapies, suggesting a greater response to CRT occurred in this population than in patients in previous trials.
Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. L-trombopag for low-risk myelodysplastic syndromes with thrombocytopenia, interim results of a phase 2, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial, ECOL MDS. Purpose. In myelodysplastic syndromes, MDS, severe thrombocytopenia is associated with poor prognosis. This multi-center trial presents the second part long-term efficacy and safety results of L-trombopag in patients with low-risk MDS and severe thrombocytopenia. Methods In this single-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, phase 2 trial of adult patients with international prognostic scoring system low or intermediate 1 risk MDS, patients with a stable platelet, PLT, count, less than 30 times 103 M3, received L-trombopag or placebo until disease progression. Primary endpoints were duration of PLT response, PLTR, calculated from the time of PLTR to date of loss of PLTR, defined as bleeding slash PLT count less than 30 times 103 slash M3 or last date in observation, and long-term safety and tolerability. Secondary endpoints included incidence and severity of bleeding, PLT transfusions, quality of life, leukemia-free survival, progression-free survival, overall survival, and pharmacokinetics. Results From 2011 to 2021, of 325 patients screened, 169 patients were randomly assigned oral ultrombopag, N equals 112, or placebo, N equals 57, at a starting dose of 50 mg once daily to maximum of 300 mg. PLTR, with 25-week follow-up, IQR, 14 to 68, occurred in 47111, 42.3%, ultrombopag patients versus 654, 11.1%, in placebo, odds ratio, 5.9, 95% C, 2.3 to 14.9, P less than 0.001. In ultrombopag patients, 1247, 25.5%, lost the PLTR, with cumulative thrombocytopenia relapse-free survival at 60 months of 63.6%, 95% C, 46.0 to 81.2. Clinically significant bleeding, WHO bleeding score greater than or equal to 2, occurred less frequently in the L-trombopag arm than in the placebo group, incidence rate ratio, 0.54, 95% C, 0.38 to 0.75, P equals 0.0002. Although no difference in the frequency of grade 1 to 2 adverse events, A's, was observed, a higher proportion of L-trombopag patients experienced grade 3 to 4 A's, CHI 2 equals 9.5, P equals 0.002. AML evolution and or disease progression occurred in 17%, for both, of L-trombopag and placebo patients with no difference in survival times. Conclusion L-trombopag was effective and relatively safe in low-risk MDS with severe thrombocytopenia. Next article from Hepatology. Lactulose therapy for patients with cirrhosis, portal hypertension, and poor patient reported outcomes, the MeCrystal trial. Background and names. Poor patient-reported outcomes, pros, are common in cirrhosis, including poor sleep and health-related quality of life, per call. He is a major driver of poor pros. Many clinicians initiate lactulose therapy to address poor pros. Pro-triggered therapy, 
however, has not been studied till date. Methods We conducted a 28-day randomized trial of crystalline lactulose therapy, 20 grams bid, compared with no HE-directed therapy in 52 patients with cirrhosis, portal hypertension, no prior HE, and high work productivity and activity impairment scores, 0 to 10, attributed to cirrhosis. The primary outcome was change in global HERCAL measured with short-form 8 health survey. Secondary outcomes included change in animal naming test score, work productivity and activity impairment, and sleep quality, scored very bad to very good. Approach and results. Overall, 52 patients underwent randomization, three subjects withdrew from the crystalline lactulose arm, one before medication initiation, one due to an unrelated condition, and one due to high baseline bowel movements. The average age was 60 years, the average model for instage liver disease, sodium score was 10.5, and 56% of the patients had ascites. Baseline bowel movements were 2.3 per day, with 35% of the patients having bristol stool scale greater than 4. At 28 days, there was no improvement in her call, patients receiving crystalline lactulose had an 8.1 point, 95% C, 3.7 to 12.4, increase compared with 6.6, 95% C, 2.3 to 10.8, in the control group, P equals 0.6. Lactulose was associated with a significantly, P equals 0.002, increased animal naming test score, 3.7, 95% C, 2.1 to 5.4, versus the control group, 0.2, 95% C, minus 1.7. 1.4. Lactulose users reported more good sleep, 92% versus 52%, P equals 0.001, and lower activity impairment, 3.0 versus 4.8, P equals 0.02. Conclusions Lactulose improves sleep and activity impairment in patients with poor pros. We did not observe any improvement in global HERCAL after 28 days using the short form 8 health survey instrument. Next article from Blood. Prevalence and Significance of DDX41 Gene Variants in the General Population Germline variants in the DDX41 gene have been linked to myelodysplastic syndromes, MDS, and acute myeloid leukemia, AML, development. However, the risks associated with different variants remain unknown, as do the basis of their leukemogenic properties, impact on steady-state hematopoiesis, and links to other cancers. Here, we investigate the frequency and significance of DDX41 variants in 454-792 United Kingdom Biobank, UKB, participants and identify 452 unique non-synonymous DNA variants in 3,538-1129 individuals. Many were novel, and the prevalence of most varied markedly by ancestry. Among the 1,059 individuals with germline pathogenic variants, DDX41 GPV, 34 developed MDS-AML, odds ratio, 12.3 versus non-carriers. Of these, 7 of 218 had start lost, 22 of 584 had truncating, and 5 of 257 had nascent, odds ratios, 12.9, 15.1 and 7.5, respectively. Using multivariate logistic regression, we found significant associations of DDX41 GPV with MDS, 
AML, and family history of leukemia but not lymphoma, myeloproliferative neoplasms, or other cancers. We also report that DDX41 GPV carriers do not have an increased prevalence of clonal hematopoiesis, CH. In fact, CH was significantly more common before sporadic versus DDX41 mutant MDS-AML, revealing distinct evolutionary paths. Furthermore, somatic mutation rates did not differ between sporadic and DDX41 mutant AML genomes, ruling out genomic instability as a driver of the latter. Finally, we found that higher mean red cell volume, MCV, and somatic DDX41 mutations in blood DNA identified DDX41 GPV carriers at increased MDS-AML risk. Collectively, our findings give new insights into the prevalence and cognate risks associated with DDX41 variants, as well as the clonal evolution and early detection of DDX41 mutant MDS-AML. Next article from Clinical Infectious Diseases Current Epidemiology and Clinical Features of Cryptococcus Infection in Patients Without Human Immunodeficiency Virus Background Patients without human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, are increasingly recognized as being at risk for cryptococcosis. Knowledge of characteristics of cryptococcosis in these patients remains incomplete. Methods we conducted a retrospective study of cryptococcosis in 46 Australian and New Zealand hospitals to compare its frequency in patients with and without HIV and describe its characteristics in patients without HIV. Patients with cryptococcosis between January 2015 and December 2019 were included. Results Of 475 patients with cryptococcosis, 90% were without HIV, 426 of 475, with marked predominance in both Cryptococcus neoformans, 88.7%, and Cryptococcus gadii cases, 94.3%. Most patients without HIV, 60.8%, had a known immunocompromising condition, cancer, and equals 91, organ transplantation, and equals 81, or other immunocompromising condition, and equals 97. Cryptococcosis presented as incidental imaging findings in 16.4% of patients, 70 of 426. The serum cryptococcal antigen test was positive in 85.1% of tested patients, 319 of 375. High titers independently predicted risk of central nervous system involvement. Lumbar puncture was performed in 167 patients to screen for asymptomatic meningitis with a positivity rate of 13.2% where meningitis could have been predicted by a high serum cryptococcal antigen titer and or fungemia in 95% of evaluable cases. One-year all-cause mortality was 20.9% in patients without HIV and 21.7% in patients with HIV, p equals 0.89. Conclusions 90% of cryptococcosis cases occurred in patients without HIV, 89% and 94% for C. neoformans and C. gadii, respectively. Emerging patient risk groups were evident. A high level of awareness is warranted to diagnose cryptococcosis in patients without HIV. Next article from Journal of Infectious Diseases. 
JC poliomavirus modifies the expression of human microRNAs in progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy brain. Progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML, is a severe neurological condition caused by reactivation of JC poliomavirus, JCIP, in immunosuppression. Asymptomatic JCIP persists in peripheral tissues. Upon reactivation, neurotropic rearrangements may emerge, and the virus gains access to the brain. To assess the mechanisms of PML pathogenesis, brain tissue material from PML patients was collected for small RNA sequencing. Upregulation of eight microRNAs, miRNAs, in PML brain was validated using quantitative microRNA polymerase chain reaction, PCR. Bioinformatics tools were utilized to identify major associations of the upregulated miRNAs, neuroinflammation and blood-brain barrier disruption. The results indicate involvement of human MIRNA regulation in PML pathogenesis. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. The effect of clinical and genetic variables of familial Mediterranean fever patients, real-life data. Background. The Eurofever slash the Pediatric Rheumatology International Trials Organization, PRINTO, classification criteria for familial Mediterranean fever, FMF, include a combination of clinical symptoms and genotype. The pathogenicity of gene variants associated with FMF is categorized by the International Study Group for Systemic Autoinflammatory Diseases, INSAID, classification criteria. Objective The aim of this study was to evaluate the real-life impact and usefulness of the Eurofever-slash-Printo classification criteria and the INSAID classification criteria in patients with FMF and their impact on treatment management. Methods In this medical records review study, the files of FMF patients who met the Eurofever-slash-Printo classification criteria were reviewed. The MAFE, Mediterranean Fever, variants were grouped according to the INSAID classification criteria. Results Of the 1,062 patients, the female-to-male ratio was 1 to 1.01. In Group 1, there were 150 patients, 14.1%, who met the clinical criteria. Group 2 consisted of 912 patients, 85.9%, who met the criteria according to genetic variants. The mean ages at symptom onset in groups 1 and 2 were 5.6 plus or minus 3.8 and 1.5 plus or minus 1.2 years, respectively, p equals 0.024. Whereas the mean annual attack frequency was 2.7 plus or minus 3.1 per year in group 1, it was 4.1 plus or minus 2.3 per year in group 2, p equals 0.04. The pathogenic variant was higher in the colchicine-resistant group compared with the responders, p equals 0.12. Conclusions The Eurofever-slash-Printo classification criteria may provide a new perspective on the diagnosis and clinical follow-up of FMF patients. Patients with a pathogenic variant who meet the Eurofever-slash-Printo classification criteria including genetic variables have earlier onset of disease and more frequent attacks than those who meet the criteria including clinical variables. These patients need regular and closer follow-ups in terms of attack frequency, colchicine dose adjustment, and colchicine resistance.
Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. The 2023 ACR-Euler Classification Criteria for Calcium Pyrophosphate Deposition Disease. Objective. Calcium Pyrophosphate Deposition, CPPD, disease is prevalent and has diverse presentations, but there are no validated classification criteria for this symptomatic arthritis. The American College of Rheumatology, ACR, and Euler have developed the first-ever validated classification criteria for symptomatic CPPD disease. Methods Supported by the ACR and Euler, a multinational group of investigators followed established methodology to develop these disease classification criteria. The group generated lists of candidate items and refined their definitions, collected to identified patient profiles, evaluated strengths of associations between candidate items and CPPD disease, developed a classification criteria framework, and used multi-criterion decision analysis to define criteria weights and a classification threshold score. The criteria were validated in an independent cohort. Results Among patients with joint pain, swelling or tenderness, entry criterion, whose symptoms are not fully explained by an alternative disease, exclusion criterion, the presence of crown dense syndrome or calcium pyrophosphate crystals in synovial fluid are sufficient to classify a patient as having CPPD disease. In the absence of these findings, a score greater than 56 points using weighted criteria, comprising clinical features, associated metabolic disorders, and results of laboratory and imaging investigations, can be used to classify as CPPD disease. These criteria had a sensitivity of 92.2% and specificity of 87.9% in the derivation cohort, 190 CPPD cases, 148 mimickers, whereas sensitivity was 99.2% and specificity was 92.5% in the validation cohort, 251 CPPD cases, 162 mimickers. Conclusion the 2023 ACR-Euler CPPD disease classification criteria have excellent performance characteristics and will facilitate research in this field. Next article from Circulation Cost-Effectiveness of Verisigwit in Patients with Heart Failure with Reduced Ejection Fraction the Victoria Randomized Clinical Trial. Background. The Victoria Trial, Verisigwit Global Study in Subjects with Heart Failure with Reduced Ejection Fraction, demonstrated that, in patients with high-risk heart failure, Verisigwit reduced the primary composite outcome of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization relative to placebo. The hazard ratio for all-cause mortality was 0.95, 95% C, 0.84 to 1.07. In a pre-specified analysis, treatment effects varied substantially as a function of baseline NT-PROB and terminal proB-type natriuretic peptide levels, with survival benefit for verisigwit in the lower NT-PROB quartiles, hazard ratio 0.82, 95% C, 0.69 to 0.97, and no benefit in the highest NT-PROB quartile, hazard ratio 1.14, 95% C, 0.95 to 1.38. An economic analysis was a major secondary objective of the Victoria Research Program. Methods Medical resource use data were collected for all Victoria patients, and equals 50-50. Costs were estimated by applying externally derived U.S. cost weights to resource use counts.
Life expectancy was projected from patient-level empirical trial survival results with the use of age-based survival modeling methods. Quality of life adjustments were based on prospectively collected EQ5D-based utilities. The primary outcome was the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio, comparing verisigwit with placebo, assessed from the U.S. healthcare sector perspective over a lifetime horizon. Cost-effectiveness was estimated using the total Victoria cohort, both with and without interaction between treatment and baseline NT-PROB. Results Life expectancy modeling results varied according to whether the observed heterogeneity of treatment effect by baseline NT-PROB values was incorporated into the modeling. Including the interaction term, the verisigwit arm had an estimated quality-adjusted life expectancy of 4.56 quality-adjusted life years, collies, compared with 4.13 collies for placebo, incremental discounted collie, 0.43. Without the treatment heterogeneity slash interaction term, verisigwit had 4.50 collies compared with 4.33 collies for placebo, incremental discounted collie, 0.17. Incremental discounted costs, verisigwit minus placebo, were $28,546 with the treatment interaction and $20,948 without it. Corresponding incremental cost-effectiveness ratios were $66,509 per collie allowing for treatment heterogeneity and $124,512 without heterogeneity. Conclusions Verisigwit use in the Victoria trial met criteria for intermediate value, but the incremental cost-effectiveness ratio estimates were sensitive to whether the analysis accounted for observed NT-PROB treatment effect heterogeneity. The cost-effectiveness of verisigwit was driven by the projected incremental life expectancy among patients in the lowest three quartiles of NT-PROB. Next article from American College of Cardiology, slash latest in cardiology. Machine learning approaches in primary mitral regurgitation. Study questions. What is the utility of machine learning, ML, to identify pathophysiologically and prognostically informative primary mitral regurgitation, MISTER, patient subgroups based on standard echocardiographic measurements? Methods. The investigators used unsupervised and supervised ML and explainable artificial intelligence, AI, to integrate 24 echocardiographic parameters in 400 primary MISTER subjects from France, and equals 243, development cohort, and Canada, and equals 157, validation cohort, followed up during a median time of 3.2, interquartile range, IQR, 1.3 to 5.3, years and 6.8, IQR, 4.0 to 8.5, years, respectively. The authors compare the phenogroup's incremental prognostic value over conventional MISTER profiles and for the primary endpoint of all-cause mortality incorporating time to mitral valve repair slash replacement surgery as a covariate for survival analysis, time-dependent exposure. The association of phenogroups with time to event, i.e., death, was examined using Cox proportional hazard regression analysis. Results High severity, HS, phenogroups from the French cohort, HS, N equals 117, low severity, LS, N equals 126, and the Canadian cohort, HS, N equals 87, LS, N equals 70 showed improved event-free survival in surgical HS subjects over non-surgical subjects, 
P equals 0.047 and P equals 0.020, respectively. A similar benefit of surgery was not seen in the LS group in both cohorts, P equals 0.7 and P equals 0.5, respectively. Phenogrouping showed incremental prognostic value in conventionally severe or moderate severe Mr. Subjects, Carol C. Statistic Improvement, P equals 0.480, and Categorical Net Reclassification Improvement, P equals 0.002. Explainable AI specified how each echocardiographic parameter contributed to phenogroup distribution. Conclusions the authors report that novel data-driven phenogrouping and explainable AI aided in improved integration of echocardiographic data to identify patients with primary MISTER and improved event-free survival after mitral valve repair-slash-replacement surgery. Perspective This preliminary study with an AI-slash-ML model integrating standard, quantitative, and objective echocardiographic parameters reports the ability to predict a patient population with primary MISTER that would benefit from mitral valve surgery and incrementally improve the prognostic value over the conventional classification method in subjects with moderate severe and severe MISTER. These data suggest the potential value of a more robust and global integration of echocardiographic data to enhance risk stratification in patients with primary MISTER and to potentially guide treatment by determining interventional benefit. However, there is a need for further trials with large, diverse populations and systematic feature selection to validate and improve model prediction and clinical utility. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Testicular dysfunction in 47, XXY boys, when it all begins. A semi-longitudinal study. Objective. Clinifilter syndrome is the most common chromosomal disorder in males and the most common cause of hypergonadotropic hypogonadism. We describe the natural history of testicular dysfunction in patients with clinifilter syndrome through the integration of clinical, hormonal, and quantitative ultrasound data in a life course perspective. Design. Prospective semi-longitudinal study. Methods. We included 155 subjects with 47, XXY karyotype, age range, 7 months 55 years, naive to testosterone replacement therapy. Subjects were divided according to pubertal stage and age group, transition age and adults. Serial clinical, hormonal, and testicular ultrasound, U.S., assessments were performed. Results Testicular development progresses until Tanner stage 4, with subsequent regression whereas Sertolian germ cell impairment is not hormonally detected before Tanner stages 3 to 4, as reflected by normal inhibin B values until stage 4 and the fall in the inhibin B slash follicle stimulating hormone ratio thereafter. The testosterone slash luteinizing hormone ratio peaks during Tanner stages 2 to 3 and declines from Tanner stage 4 onward, preceding the development of overt hypogonadism. U.S. echo texture progressively worsens until transition age, reflecting ongoing gonadal compromise, whereas quantitative U.S. echotexture measures and the presence of both hypoechoic lesions and microlithiasis independently and significantly predict a lower circulating testosterone level. Conclusions The findings from this large prospective study contribute to our understanding of the natural history of testicular dysfunction and clinifilter syndrome, underlining the importance of quantitative testicular U.S. in infancy and childhood, 
as well as during pubertal development and transition age, for the optimal care of clinifilter syndrome patients. Sex-specific association between adipose tissue inflammation and vascular and metabolic complications of obesity. Context. Adipose tissue, at, inflammation predisposes to insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome in obesity. Objective. To investigate the association between adipocyte size, at inflammation, systemic inflammation and metabolic and atherosclerotic complications of obesity in a sex-specific manner. Design. Cross-sectional cohort study. Setting. University Hospital in the Netherlands. Participants. A total of 302 adult subjects with a body mass index, BMI, greater than or equal to 27 kg M2. Main outcome measures. We obtained subcutaneous abdominal fat biopsies and systematically assessed, in a sex-specific manner, associations of several parameters of at inflammation, including adipocyte size, macrophage content, crown-like structures, and gene expression, to biomarkers of systemic inflammation, leukocyte number and function, and to the presence of metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and carotid atherosclerotic plaques, assessed with ultrasound. Results. Adipocyte size was associated with metabolic syndrome and at macrophage content with insulin resistance. In contrast, none of the at parameters was associated with carotid atherosclerosis, although mRNA expression of the anti-inflammatory IL-37 was associated with a lower intermediate thickness. We revealed profound sex-specific differences, with an association between BMI and adipocyte size, and between adipocyte size and metabolic syndrome in men only. Also, only men showed an association between adipocyte size at expression of leptin and MCP1, and at macrophage numbers and between at inflammation, crown-like structure number and several circulating inflammatory proteins, including high-specificity C-reactive protein, and IL-6. Conclusions Inflammation in abdominal subcutaneous adipose tissue is more related to the metabolic than the atherosclerotic complications of obesity, and there are profound sex-specific differences in the association between BMI, adipocyte size, at inflammation, and systemic inflammation, which are much stronger in men than women. Next article from Neurology. Association of plasma biomarkers of Alzheimer disease with cognition and medical comorbidities in a biracial cohort. Background and objectives Recent advances in blood-based biomarkers offer the potential to revolutionize the diagnosis and management of Alzheimer disease AD, but additional research in diverse populations is critical. We assess the profiles of blood-based AD biomarkers and their relationships to cognition and common medical comorbidities in a biracial cohort. Methods participants were evaluated through the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville Alzheimer Disease Research Center and matched on age, sex, and cognitive status. Plasma AD biomarkers, beta-amyloid peptide 1-42, a beta-4240, plasma tau phosphorylated at position 181, p-tau-181, glial fibrillary acidic protein, FAP, and neurofilament light, were measured using the Quantrix CMOA HDX analyzer. Cognition was assessed with the mini mental state examination. 
Wilcoxon ranks some tests were used to assess for differences in plasma biomarker levels by sex. Linear models tested for associations of self-reported race, chronic kidney disease, CKD, and vascular risk factors with plasma AD biomarker levels. Additional models assessed for interactions between race and plasma biomarkers in predicting cognition. Results The sample comprised African American, AA, and equals 267, and non-Hispanic white, NHW, and equals 268, participants, including 69% female participants and age range 43 to 100, median 80.2, years. Education was higher in NHW participants, median 16 versus 12 years, P less than 0.001, while AP Epsilon 4 positivity was higher in AA participants, 43% versus 34%, P equals 0.04. We observed no differences in plasma AD biomarker levels between AA and NHW participants. These results were unchanged after stratifying by cognitive status, unimpaired versus impaired. Although the PTAU-181 cognition association seemed stronger in NHW participants while the A-beta-4240 cognition association seemed stronger in AA participants, these findings did not survive after excluding individuals with CKD. Female participants displayed higher FAP, 177.5 pg per milliliter versus 157.73 pg per milliliter, p equals 0.002, and lower PTAU-181. 2.62 pg per milliliter versus 3.28 pg per milliliter, p equals 0.001, levels than male participants. Diabetes was inversely associated with FAP levels, beta equals minus 0.01, p less than 0.001. Discussion in a biracial community-based sample of adults, we observed that sex differences, CKD, and vascular risk factors, but not self-reported race, contributed to variation in plasma AD biomarkers. Although some prior studies have reported primary effects of race-slash-ethnicity, our results reinforce the need to account for broad-based medical and social determinants of health, including sex, systemic comorbidities, and other factors, in effectively and equitably deploying plasma AD biomarkers in the general population. Next article from CHEST. Open-label trial of amikacin liposome inhalation suspension in mycobacterium abscessus lung disease. Background. Mycobacterium abscessus is the second most common non-tuberculous mycobacterium respiratory pathogen and shows in vitro resistance to nearly all oral antimicrobials. M. abscessus treatment success is low in the presence of macrolide resistance. Research question. Does treatment with amikacin liposome inhalation suspension, ALIS, improve culture conversion in patients with M. abscessus pulmonary disease who are treatment-naive or who have treatment refractory disease? Study design and methods. In an open-label protocol, patients were given ALIS, 590 mg, added to background multidrug therapy for 12 months. The primary outcome was sputum culture conversion defined as three consecutive monthly sputum cultures showing negative results. The secondary endpoint included development of amikacin resistance. Results Of 33 patients, 36 isolates, who started ALIS with a mean age of 64 years, range, 14 to 81 years, 24 patients, 73% were female, 
10 patients, 30%, had cystic fibrosis, and 9 patients, 27%, had cavitary disease. 3 patients, 9%, could not be evaluated for the microbiologic endpoint because of early withdrawal. All pretreatment isolates were amicacin susceptible and only 6 isolates, 17%, were macrolide susceptible. 11 patients, 33%, were given parenteral antibiotics. 12 patients, 40%, received clofazamine with or without azithromycin as companion therapy. 15 patients, 50%, with evaluable longitudinal microbiologic data demonstrated culture conversion, and 10 patients, 67%, sustained conversion through month 12. 6 of the 33 patients, 18%, demonstrated mutational amicacin resistance. All were patients using clofazamine or clofazamine plus azithromycin as companion medications. Few serious adverse events occurred for ALICE users, however, reduction of dosing to three times weekly was common, 52%. Interpretation In a cohort of patients primarily with macrolide-resistant M. abscesses, one half of the patients using ALICE showed sputum culture conversion to negative findings. The emergence of mutational amicacin resistance was not uncommon and occurred with the use of clofazamine monotherapy. Lower versus higher fluid volumes in adult patients with sepsis. Background. Four fluids are recommended for adults with sepsis. However, the optimal strategy for four fluid management in sepsis is unknown, and clinical equipoise exists. Research question. Do lower versus higher fluid volumes improve patient important outcomes in adult patients with sepsis? Study design and methods. We updated a systematic review with meta-analysis and trial sequential analysis of randomized clinical trials assessing lower versus higher four fluid volumes in adult patients with sepsis. The co-primary outcomes were all-cause mortality, serious adverse events, and health-related quality of life. We followed the recommendations from the Cochrane Handbook and used the grading of recommendations assessment, development, and evaluation approach. Primary conclusions were based on trials with low risk of bias if available. Results We included 13 trials, N equals 4006, with 4 trials, N equals 3385, added to this update. The meta-analysis of all-cause mortality in 8 trials with low risk of bias showed a relative risk of 0.99, 97% C, 0.89 to 1.10, moderate certainty evidence. Six trials with predefined definitions of serious adverse events showed a relative risk of 0.95, 97% C, 0.83 to 1.07, low certainty evidence. Health-related quality of life was not reported. Interpretation Among adult patients with sepsis, lower four fluid volumes probably result in little to no difference in all-cause mortality compared with higher four fluid volumes, but the interpretation is limited by imprecision in the estimate which does not exclude potential benefit or harm. Similarly, the evidence suggests lower four fluid volumes result in little to no difference in serious adverse events. No trials reported on health-related quality of life. The effects of exercise training in patients with persistent dyspnea following pulmonary embolism. Background. 
persistent dyspnea, functional limitations, and reduced quality of life, call, are common following pulmonary embolism, PE. Rehabilitation is a potential treatment option, but the scientific evidence is limited. Research question. Does an exercise-based rehabilitation program improve exercise capacity in PE survivors with persistent dyspnea? Study design and methods. This randomized controlled trial was conducted at two hospitals. Patients with persistent dyspnea following PE diagnosed 6 to 72 months earlier, without cardiopulmonary comorbidities, were randomized one-to-one to either the rehabilitation or the control group. The rehabilitation program consisted of two weekly sessions of physical exercise for eight weeks and one educational session. The control group received usual care. The primary endpoint was the difference in incremental shuttle walk test between groups at follow-up. Secondary endpoints included differences in the endurance shuttle walk test, ESWT, call, EQ5D and pulmonary embolism call questionnaires, and dyspnea, shortness of breath questionnaire. Results A total of 211 subjects were included, 108, 51%, were randomized to the rehabilitation group, and 103, 49%, to the control group. At follow-up, participants allocated to the rehabilitation group performed better on the ISWT compared with the control group, mean difference, 53.0 meters, 95% C, 17.7 to 88.3, P equals 0.0035. The rehabilitation group reported better scores on the pulmonary embolism call questionnaire, mean difference, minus 4%, 95% C, minus 0.09 to 0.00, T equals 0.041, at follow-up, but there were no differences in generic call, dyspnea scores, or the ESWT. No adverse events occurred during the intervention. Interpretation In patients with persistent dyspnea following PE, Those who underwent rehabilitation had better exercise capacity at follow-up than those who received usual care. Rehabilitation should be considered in patients with persistent dyspnea following PE. Further research is needed, however, to assess the optimal patient selection, timing, mode, and duration of rehabilitation. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Conservative versus liberal oxygenation targets in intensive care unit patients, iconic, a randomized clinical trial. Rationale, supplemental oxygen is widely administered to ICU patients, but appropriate oxygenation targets remain unclear. Objectives, This study aimed to determine whether a low oxygenation strategy would lower 28-day mortality compared with a high oxygenation strategy. Methods, this randomized multicenter trial included mechanically ventilated ICU patients with an expected ventilation duration of at least 24 hours. Patients were randomized one-to-one to to a low oxygenation, POW2, 55-80mHg, or oxygen saturation as measured by pulse oximetry, 91-94% or high oxygenation, POW2, 110 to 150 mHg, or oxygen saturation as measured by pulse oximetry, 96 to 100%, target until ICU discharge or 28 days after randomization, whichever came first. The primary outcome was 28-day mortality. The study was stopped prematurely because of the COVID-19 pandemic when 664 of the planned 1,512 patients were included. 
Measurements and main results. Between November 2018 and November 2021, a total of 664 patients were included in the trial, 335 in the low oxygenation group and 329 in the high oxygenation group. The median achieved POW2 was 75 mHg interquartile range, 70 to 84, and 115 mHg interquartile range, 100 to 129, in the low and high oxygenation groups, respectively. At day 28, 129, 38.5%, and 114, 34.7%, patients had died in the low and high oxygenation groups, respectively, risk ratio, 1.11, 95% confidence interval, 0.9 to 1.4, t equals 0.30. At least one serious adverse event was reported in 12, 3.6%, and 17, 5.2%, patients in the low and high oxygenation groups, respectively. Conclusions, among mechanically ventilated ICU patients with an expected mechanical ventilation duration of at least 24 hours, using a low oxygenation strategy did not result in a reduction of 28-day mortality compared with a high oxygenation strategy. Next article is from Clinical and Translational Gastroenterology. Lactulose versus polyethylene glycol for bowel preparation, a single-center, prospective, randomized controlled study based on the BMI objective. Colonoscopy is currently considered as one of the principal techniques to diagnose the colorectal diseases. Admittedly, qualified bowel preparation before colonoscopy is a premise for high-quality examination. Lower-quality bowel preparation might seriously impede the visualization of the intestinal mucosa, resulting in missed and misdiagnosed intestinal lesions. Therefore, it is necessary to choose the appropriate oral laxative based on the guarantee of safety and efficacy. Methods This prospective randomized controlled study was conducted to compare lactulose oral solution and polyethylene glycol electrolytes power, PEG, for bowel preparation using the following indicators, Boston Bowel Preparation Scale BBPS, Bowel Bubble Score BBS, the detection rate of adenoma and lesion, patient satisfaction and adverse effects. Our study investigated the suitability of two bowel preparation reagents for patients with different body mass indices mainly based on body mass index BMI. Results In the lactulose group there was a significant improvement in the quality of bowel preparation compared with those in the PEG group. P less than 0.05, especially in people with normal BMI and higher BMI. Compared with the PEG group, individuals in the lactulose group had a significantly higher adenoma detection rate, ADR 50% versus 33.5%, P less than 0.05, and taste scores, 8.82 versus 6.69, P less than 0.05, as well as significantly fewer adverse reactions, 6.5% versus 32.5%, P less than 0.05. Conclusions Lactulose oral solution is superior to PEG in terms of bowel preparation quality and taste, especially in normal BMI and higher BMI groups. It can be used clinically as a potential and promising bowel preparation agent in the future. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. 
renin angiotensin aldosterone system blockade after Aki with or without recovery among U.S. veterans with diabetic kidney disease. Background Optimal use of angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, ACIs, or angiotensin II receptor blockers, ARBs, after Aki is uncertain. Methods Using data derived from electronic medical records, we sought to estimate the association between ACE-ARB use after Aki and mortality in U.S. military veterans with indications for such treatment, diabetes and proteinuria, while accounting for Aki recovery. We used ACE-ARB treatment after hospitalization with Aki, defined as serum creatinine greater than or equal to 50% above baseline concentration, as a time-varying exposure in Cox models. The outcome was all-cause mortality. Recovery was defined as return to less than or equal to 110% of baseline creatinine. A secondary analysis focused on ACE-ARB use relative to Aki recovery, before versus after. Results Among 54,735 veterans with Aki, 31,146 deaths occurred over a median follow-up period of 2.3 years. Approximately 57% received an ACE-ARB less than three months after hospitalization. In multivariate analysis with time-varying recovery, post-Aki ACE-ARB use was associated with lower risk of mortality, adjusted hazard ratio R, 0.74, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.72 to 0.77. The association between ACE-ARB use and mortality varied over time, with lower mortality risk associated with earlier initiation, P4 interaction with time less than 0.001. In secondary analysis, compared with those with neither recovery nor ACE-ARB use, risk of mortality was lower in those with recovery without ACE-ARB use, R, 0.90, 95% C, 0.87 to 0.94, those without recovery with ACE-ARB use, R, 0.69, 95% C, 0.66 to 0.72, and those with ACE-ARB use after recovery, R, 0.70, 95% C, 0.67 to 0.73. Conclusions This study demonstrated lower mortality associated with ACE-ARB use in veterans with diabetes, proteinuria, and Aki regardless of recovery. Results favored earlier ACE-ARB initiation. Next article is from Clinical Journal of Kidney International. A cohort study found a high risk of end-stage kidney disease associated with acromegaly. Acromegaly is a chronic systemic disease caused by excess levels of growth hormone and insulin-like growth factor 1 and is associated with numerous complications. Significantly, there is a lack of longitudinal data on kidney complications in patients with acromegaly. As such, we investigated the risk of end-stage kidney disease, ESKD, stage 5D, 5T, in these patients with nationwide data obtained from the National Health Information Database of the National Health Insurance Service in Republic of Korea. A retrospective cohort study was conducted of 2.187 patients with acromegaly and 10,935 age and sex-matched, 1 to 5, control subjects without acromegaly over a mean follow-up period of 6.51 years. 
The study outcomes were analyzed using Cox proportional hazards regression analysis controlling for age, sex, household income, residential area, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, urolithiasis, congestive heart failure, myocardial infarction, stroke, and atrial fibrillation. The incidence, per 1,000 person years, ESKD was 2 o'clock among patients with acromegaly but only 0.46 among controls, hazard ratio 4.35, 95% confidence interval 2.63 to 7.20, implicating a significantly higher risk. After adjustment for covariates, the risk of ESKD, 2.36, 1.36 to 4.12, was still significantly higher in patients with acromegaly than that in controls. Among the covariates, diabetes and hypertension were significant facilitators between acromegaly and ESKD mediation analysis. Pituitary surgery and somatostatin analogs did not significantly change these associations. Thus, acromegaly may be linked with a higher risk for ESKD both independently and through mediators such as diabetes and hypertension. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.